Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Raw Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Holidays are fast approaching. Yeah. Christmas is apparently just about here. Yes. I guess uh, as of the time of this coming out, it'll be just a couple days away. Um, I feel like most folks, us included, are working right up until the 23rd, so it feels a little surreal. Yeah. It, it's not a lot of breathing room no. between work ending and the holiday rumpus beginning. Yeah, we've watched a lot fewer Christmas movies than we normally have, so we start getting there at the end of this episode. Yeah. And then the Thursday after Christmas will be our chalk-filled holiday film episode keeping the spirit going yeah so you can just continue to hold on to christmas because it seemed to come so late this year so speaking of christmas um we're so thankful for everybody going on this journey with us that just started in march and listening to us week in and week out and the new people that we've gathered along the way um and something that we would ask that you could do for us for christmas if you're so inclined is share us with somebody so just one person that you think might like our show send an episode to them that'd be really really lovely and if you're also so inclined you could leave us a rating and or review on apple Podcasts or spotify or give us a follow if you're not following us yet um that would be really lovely yeah give the gift of two stinkies talking about their feelings and (laughs) their dads um to somebody that you care about and like what a better time to give that gift than when we all kind of you know a lot of us have the time off around the holidays, so it's a great time to catch up on all the episodes. And a lot of us are thinking about family in positive and negative ways, yeah. usually at the same time. Yeah, can be a uh, tricky tricky thing to navigate around the holidays for sure. Absolutely. But even if you don't feel so inclined to do those things, we are so thankful that you are listening to us and um, we hope that you enjoy. Absolutely. Let's get into some movies. All right. You really wanted to watch this first one. And so it wasn't a mystery pick, but you were like, let's watch it. It's on Netflix now. Mm-hmm. So we watched Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh, I thought it was Pinocchio. 
It's not actually. It's Pinocchio. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it is, the title is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. So just so you're aware. Just so you know, it's like <laughs> Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before, Before Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, which we uh, will be watching later. <laughs> we watched this week too. So Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio came out in 2022. It's an animated drama family film directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafsson and written by Guillermo del Toro and Patrick McHale. It is based on the book by Carlo Collotti, but um, not really like the book at all, according to my research. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, synopsis, if you're unfamiliar with Pinocchio, uh, a father's wish magically brings a wooden boy to life in Italy, giving him a chance to care for the child. The cast, Ewan McGregor plays Cricket. David Bradley of um, Filch fame. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Geppetto. Gregory Mann is Pinocchio. Really? Wait, that, that's him? Oh, dear. We are in trouble. <laughs> yeah, it is. And he plays uh, Mr. Grosso, Red Wedding guy from yeah. Game of Thrones. But yeah. here he is a very lovely Geppetto. Uh, then Kate Blanchett is Spazzatura, and Tilde Swinton herself, Tilda Swinton, is Wood Sprite. Pretty stacked, actually. Yeah, it's a pretty cool cast. What'd you think of it? So... Funnily enough, this is the second Pinocchio movie to come out this year. We did not watch the Tom Hanks live action Disney version. No, I'm not really interested in seeing that one. Me neither. But the thing is, is that I am a huge fan of the Disney animated version. Like I grew up with that. Um, the, it's funny because like the Disney logo that plays before movies now, like it plays the If You Could Wish Upon a Star, like that's the melody that it plays mm -hmm. over top of, of the credits so like it's obviously a beloved film within the disney pantheon but I, I i am a huge fan of the original disney version so when i saw this was coming out i think we both kind of had a bit of a similar reaction i mean first of all we both absolutely love stop motion animation yes B big week for us with stop motion animation films yes um but we also really love Guillermo del Toro's vibe like while not necessarily all of his films are for us we we generally when we see he's done something we're intrigued because mm -hmm. he does creepy and kind of creepy like, and whimsical yes and he blends those really well or attaches himself to projects that blend those two th elements really well yeah um so I kind of experienced a bit of a journey of emotions ramping up to this movie. And it started with me, you know, when, we, when I first heard that Guillermo del Toro was going to be doing Pinocchio, I was really excited. Mm -hmm. I, it just seemed like a great fit. And then we saw the first trailer and I feel like we both felt like this is starting to feel really little kitty. Mm -hmm. And this was not the, this is not what I was expecting. This is not what I was excited for. And then I started seeing the reviews roll in. And it made me curious again because a lot of people were saying that it was really great and really loved it. And now it's starting to be now it's kind of starting to get a little bit more traction with award season starting to happen. Um, This is not Little Kitty at all. I didn't feel I wouldn't say it's not Little Kitty at all. It It's like it's not as Little Kitty as I thought that first trailer set me up to feel like. Mm -hmm. But it definitely it's not all whimsy. No. Um, it does bring in some <laughs> some harsh reality as well. Yeah, I think it's I think it's well balanced. Um, this was kind of the experience I had where I feel like if I had seen this movie when I was a kid, 
it would probably be one of my favorite movies of all time for the rest of my life. Right, yeah. But because I am an adult, the things that are more little kiddish about it that I would like as a kid and therefore continue to like as I grow up because I liked them when I was a kid mm-hmm. didn't work for me. Right. But this isn't meant to be for adults, right? Yeah. So it's that weird experience of knowing that this is a phenomenal movie for kids. Like I'm really mm-hmm. excited that this may be a film that our really young nieces get to grow up with. Yeah. Potentially. Um, but for me personally, there's enough kiddish elements that stop it from being like a slam dunk for me on an emotional and personal level. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I feel, I mean, it, it leans into some really bleak reality stuff really well mm-hmm. and it's really effective and it has something to say by the end of the film about life and the parts we all play in each other's lives mm-hmm. and the importance we have to each other um but yeah i agree there's it's kind of like the dog from up a little bit yeah i hate the dog from up. <laughs> where there's just like this really great very grounded very emotionally impactful story being told and then you throw in this little kid element that's just there for the kids and that's kind of peppered throughout here. And I agree with you. That's kind of what pulls me out of this. Yeah. And it doesn't allow me to make this a five out of five. But this movie isn't for us. Right. I think that um, something that really something that I did really like about this movie is it was a very different take on Pinocchio as like a story that we know. I mean, we all know it's not Disney's story, mm-hmm. but the do you know when the first one came out? I don't. It's older, right? Yeah, like it was like it's like early, early Disney. Because I feel like that's by and large the Pinocchio that most of us are familiar with. Um, and this isn't that Pinocchio, right? Like there's even down to the way that Pinocchio looks, and I really liked it. I really liked the design of him, and I liked um his nose growing when he lies is such a minor, minor element of this film. When it's, I yeah. think, the predominant element. Of the Disney film, but the way that they had his nose grow, I thought was really cool, just from an aesthetic cool. point of view. Uh, the Disney version came out in 1940. Yeah, so that's old. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we didn't watch the new live action film because after, which, which live actions have we watched? We watched The Lion King. Um, I saw Beauty and the Beast with my sisters, my mom, and our oldest niece. Yeah. And I feel like we watched one more. Jungle Book? seen the jungle book but they just haven't really enamored us and so i think we've kind of been like eh, with the live action disney disney movies so it was really cool to see such a different take on this and i think it does do you know what say a pan's labyrinth does but where pan's labyrinth is for an older audience this is for a younger audience and so it has perhaps a little bit more whimsy than darkness Mm -hmm. um And something that I was just really taken with is when I think about younger kids watching this and watching it with like the adults in their lives is that this would be a really great tool to begin talking about grief. Yeah. And like the reality of death because the, you know, the film it's right in the synopsis begins with like Geppetto experiencing a loss and through Pinocchio, you know, having to come to terms with that loss. And that's really the resonant theme throughout the film is like when tragedy happens in our lives as it will, how do we cope with that? Yeah. And I think what a, um, 
beautiful, brilliant tool this could be to begin those conversations in like age appropriate ways with adults and the kids in their lives. Totally. Yeah. That was kind of the first thing that resonated with me at the end of the film. And you had brought that up too. Cause you think back to so many of the films that we watched growing up that are kid focused or family focused, the way that it deals with death is so commonly that a person just kind of dies. And then we kind of fast forward to the happy time after that. We don't really get that in between where there is a grieving process and people are kind of having to work through that or anything. Like, I think the attitude was like, kids don't need to see that. We'll have our dramatic hit with a death happening in the film, but then we don't want to like linger in that for too long. And I feel like that was really common in kids' movies But this is totally reveling in that. And I think it becomes that really great piece of media that kids can go to or experience and kind of shows the stages of grief and how it's not just a this happens and we can fast forward kind of thing. Like it it is a lingering thing. And I do think there's been some films more recently, like Big Hero 6, I think, does a really good job of it. Um, Yeah. Oh, there's another one that I'm thinking of from, I think it's like the, uh, not Pixar, but Disney, um, which does not come to my mind right now. But I think there's something different about this film in that it tackles like the, not just the grief of death, but the reality of death. Like what is death? So Mm -hmm. not just what do we emotionally experience when we go through a loss, which I think Big Hero 6 does really well. Um, but just like what is death as a concept? Yeah. And I was really taken with, um, like, the Tilda Swinton characters, mm-hmm. which is obviously a new addition to the story from my understanding. I went and read, like, started to read the Wikipedia summary for the original book, and I was like, I am over this already. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it's a just, like, this little wooden boy going and experiencing all these adventures, and I was not that interested in it. <laughs> um, But those characters were both like visually really striking. And I think that they ground the film in like some bigger conversations about the unknowable things about the experience of being a human. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was uh, really compelling and I was really drawn to it. And I think it could be really great, like I said, tools for conversations between kids and adults. Yeah, 100% agree. I said maybe if I saw this movie when I was a kid, I'd be less afraid of death. Yeah. No, 100%. But I would still like poop because there is a great song about poop. Oh, yeah. Like, I, and by like poop, I mean like a good poop joke. Yeah, yeah. I've, I I actually thought that this had like some pretty good tunes in it. I mean, for having, you know, something's as iconic as the 1940s Pinocchio that has some songs that have stood the test of time. You know, the willingness to take on the story of Pinocchio, which is, I would, for all intents and purposes, a beloved story. And then wanting to write new songs for it. It's I I would say that that's a challenging thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I thought there was some really good stuff in here in terms of this in terms of the music. Um <laughs> that Chow Papa song has been nominated for everything. And that, that was wasn't part, your favorite one. It wasn't. I, I mean this poop song's really good. It is really funny. Um and in the context of where it is in the film is also really funny. Yeah, it's pretty good. I would uh as as I say that I don't love little kid elements, and then I say the song about poop is one of my favorite. <laughs> it's the <moments>. highlight. <laughs> um, this film did make me cry a bunch at the end. Yeah, it has one of those endings um, that just gets both of us. Yeah. Um, 
when it has happened in some of our favorite things, our favorite pieces of media, same reaction. Yeah, it was a really strong ending. The last like 10, 15 minutes I found really, really, really compelling. And I think this is a movie I definitely would be interested in watching again. Even like it's just it's beautiful. Like it's mm-hmm. beautifully made. The voice acting is incredibly well done. Um, yeah, I liked it. Yeah. I, and I mean, the the thing that is just firing on all cylinders and that makes this film incredible is the uh, the visuals. Yeah, and it's so incredible because the stop motion is so well done that it almost looks like animation pretending to be stop motion, but it is stop motion. Because I feel like there's there are some CG elements in here too, but it's blended... I may be wrong about that too, but it's blended so seamlessly with the stop motion that it all just works and it's all magic. Um, I'll never not love stop motion animation. I'm looking forward to the day that we talk about our favorite or at least my favorite stop motion movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. What did you, how did it make you feel? Pleasantly surprised because it, my expect, like I said, I kind of, took the expectation tower of terror where I kind of went up to the top (laughs) and I I got let down. And then I found like this kind of happy medium where I was just like, okay, actually I'm, I'm really happy with the story that they told here. While not all elements necessarily hit me the ways I want, I wanted it to, I was pleasantly surprised with how awesome it, uh, it was in the end. Um, yeah, I, and, but I'm with you. Like, I think I would watch it again. I don't know how often I would revisit it, but... I think it's one that I would happily watch with our nieces. Yeah. Like, it's one of those ones that, like, I don't love watching, say, Inside Out with a young a young one. But there's some yeah. movies that, um, in watching them with a kiddo, allow you to, like, appreciate why it's made for a kid. Yeah, I agree. How to make you feel? made me feel reflective that's great just about um it made me feel reflective about like what my expectations were for the film and sometimes i think it's a little unfair for me to expect a film for kids to be for me yeah like that's he's not making pinocchio for adults he's making pinocchio for kids Mm -hmm. um and i think it's still a film that can impact and be enjoyable for anyone Mm -hmm. um and then it made me reflective just about my my own like experience with like the films I watched as a kid and ideas of grief and death and loss. And I, yeah. As a filmmaker, that must be such a difficult thing as specifically if you're trying to be a family film filmmaker or make a family film. Cause yeah, as you grow up, these movies shift of who, like how you relate to them. And it's such an interesting journey just as a human being of, you know, a kid watching yeah, inside out or watching, watching this or watching Pinocchio as opposed to us as 30 something year old people watching it. It's yeah. Being a, being a human that ages is weird. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Okay. Lovely. All right. Uh, the next movie was my, we only had one mystery movie picked this week. It was a big theater week this week Mm -hmm. and I picked an absolute banger. (laughs) What did you? <laughs> uh, I say that with sarcasm. I picked the 1997 action adventure sci-fi film, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes. Uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Michael Crichton and David Kep. Uh, it stars, and 
I cannot encourage you enough to go to IMDb and look at the profile photo for Jeff Goldblum because it is gold. <laughs> do that right now. Um, it stars Jeff Goldblum as returning as Ian Malcolm, Julianne Moore as Sarah, uh, Vince Vaughn as Nick Van Owen, Arliss Howard as Peter Ludlow, and Richard Schiff as Eddie Carr. I just want to correct you a little bit there. Okay. Um, Michael Crichton wrote the novel that the film's based on, but David Kopp wrote the screenplay. Yes. yes. They didn't co-write it. No, yeah. I'm sorry. I, did. I neglected the specification, <laughs> but that's right. Thank you. Um, synopsis. A research team is sent into the Jurassic Park Site B island to study the dinosaurs there, while an engine team approaches with another agenda. Did you look at the photo? It's a lovely. It's so good. Um, it's bright. It's warm. Yeah. <laughs> Everything Jeff Goldblum. All right. I mean, I've seen this. I've seen this before. I've seen it many times, and I'll get into that in a second. But what do you think of the Lost World Jurassic Park? <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> yeah. It's a treat to have Jeff Goldblum be so prominently in a film because I could watch him do literally nothing forever. So in that respect, enjoyable. Yeah. But man, just nothing will ever be as good as the original Jurassic Park. And I don't know why they're trying. I don't know why they're still trying to this day. Yeah. Let, let's get into this. I was I was going to get into like my history with it and stuff first. I'll get into that after. But let's let's get into just the Jurassic Park legacy of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I, I feel that there's a couple hot takes I'm going to give here. <laughs> first one is I feel like the two best dinosaur movies that have ever been made are the first Jurassic Park movie and The Land Before Time. Oh, The Land Before Time is so good. I, I feel like those are the two best movies that have been made. If you have a counterpoint to that, hit us up in the comments. Hit us up on Instagram, baddad.raddad. But I will maintain that those two are the best. I will say, in terms of the Jurassic series, that, that encompasses all of the Jurassic Park movies and the three Jurassic World movies, that this is probably the strongest of all the sequels. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think... My struggle with like a dinosaur and also like just monster movies in general is, and I think this speaks to you saying The Land Before Time is this other great dinosaur movie, is that with dinosaurs or monsters, there's only so much you can do because they're animalistic. They're like the monster or the dinosaur or the creature can't speak, can't have a counterplot, <laughs> you know, and they do their best. Yeah. It's always Velociraptors and Tyrannosaurus Rexes, and maybe they want their babies back and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a creature and it's a creature with instincts. Yeah. And so at a certain point, they get a little repetitive to me until there's like a unique way to approach like the problem of the monster. Mm. And I think I'm not as generally drawn to monster movies as I am to say a supernatural film or a like serial killer film or something like that, where the villain can have a personality. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I say that understanding that like if monster movies are your jam, like it can just be thrilling to see that even if it is repetitive or Mm -hmm. if you love dinosaurs, like our three just about four year old niece loves dinosaurs. When you asked her yesterday, 
what she asked for for Christmas. She said a dinosaur. And then you said, what kind of dinosaur? And she said a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a certain thrill in watching these, but Jurassic Park, the original did it so well. And it's like, how can anything ever beat that again when like the creatures are just creatures and they aren't going to have different impulses? Like it's always going to be the same because it's a creature. So Land Before Time switches that because it gives them the ability to talk and speak and have emotions, right? Yeah. But that, like that's just it too. Like thinking about that, it's so true that it works really well the first time. And I feel like it works in a movie like to the first Jurassic Park as well as the movie Jaws because you're surrounded by really great characters. But that's I was even thinking of that when I was kind of mulling over why I didn't like this movie as much, why I haven't liked the subsequent Jurassic movies, World and Park. I, have, I don't know if I've seen the third Jurassic Park. Um, but also we recently watched the trailer for the new Adam Driver movie, 65. And as soon mm-hmm. as it was revealed it was dinosaurs, I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. I'm okay. Um, and it made me think of shark movies where I'm like, Jaws did it so well. And it's not like subsequent shark movies can't be good, but we've seen the best version of it already. And a shark is a shark is a shark. Yes. So I like the shark in Finding Nemo because it can talk. Yeah. Right. But at a certain point, we've so, seen the shark be the thing that is chasing our protagonists and we've seen the best version of that. So unless you've got a really innovative way to explore this differently, it's just an attempt to repeat something that's already been done the best way it can be done. Yeah, it's it, it becomes this thing, at least in in my eyes, of how do you make the dinosaurs better? Like I, I made I made that that stupid reel on our Instagram just saying like at this point by the last Jurassic world movie that just came out, they've nailed CGI dinosaurs. Yeah. They're, they're as good as they can be. And like, even with what, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but even with what you're saying about, you know, personifying or like characterizing the, the dinosaurs to like give them more. I mean, the whole arc with the, the Raptor and, and Chris Pratt's oh, character. Oh, like the blue stuff? Yeah, yeah. like tr- that's them trying to pull oddly humanity into this animal. Yeah. But it, it doesn't work. It comes For me, it comes across as like hammy and it kind of takes away the spirit of the Jurassic movies. I I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just long-windedly saying I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just tricky. Like I just, um, as someone that monster movies aren't my go-to, Mm-hmm. I kind of just think, well, I've seen the best version of this already. Right. But I know that other people feel that way about, like, say, slasher movies, whereas I like slasher movies enough that even when they're kind of just repetitive, I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of who these sequels are for, people who just, like, love watching dinosaur stuff, and and you're that person. That's that's just it. I was about to say, like, I I will watch the... the, the I will watch the schlocky shark movies and the... And the the King Kongs and the Godzillas and I've I've watched all of these these Jurassic movies. I mean, I was gonna say, I mean, this this particular movie, Lost World, kind of holds a special place in my heart because it was the first Jurassic Park movie I saw in the theater. Like my parents didn't take me to see the original one because yeah. they thought I'd be too scared. But when it came out on VHS, I loved it. Rewatched it over and over. So they're like, "Oh, he can handle this." So I saw it in the theater, which was amazing. And when it came out on VHS. I watched it over and over and over again. So I know this movie really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when it came out too, this uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but when it came out, 
my dad and his brother, my uncle, surprised my grandparents with a big screen TV and a surround system, which in the 90s were just these massive units, <laughs> just massive piece of, pieces of equipment. But they bought... They bought and hooked this up, and I think one of the first movies we watched on it was The Lost World Jurassic Park. And so seeing that movie on the, a, a home TV big screen with like the surround system is something I'll never forget because it was so cool. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, it's like being in the movie theater. But yeah, it's, it's, I'll still, you know, I'll still go for a movie, and the movies that really resonate with me are the, are the character driven things. But in terms of the monster movies, I'm, at this point, I'm not expecting much because, like you've said, and we've said previously on the show, the best versions of these kinds of movies, I feel, have been made. But when we watched the trailer for 65 and the reveal was it was dinosaurs, you went, oh, cool, it's dinosaurs. And I was like, oh, my goodness, it's dinosaurs. I know. Right? So I'm so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that's it. There is a audience for these movies, and I'm not denigrating that. Like, it's... yeah. Because it is thrilling and it is fun. And I actually thought The Lost World was scarier than Jurassic Park. But it wasn't really necessarily to do with the dinosaurs. It was more to do with heights. Um, yeah. There's a couple really good sequences in this. There are. Like, I think my problem with it is I did find the characters more interesting and I was more invested in them in the first one. Yeah. Um, And I wanted this movie to end earlier than it did it kind of has like a second sequence yeah and i i personally didn't need it but i've also read some people saying like that's their favorite part of the movie so that might just be a me thing well i feel like it's this thing that happens where they kind of subvert your ex expectations because the first movie ends when they get off the island and then when they get off the island in this movie that just kind of leads us to the final act yeah um, and so, I was like, whoa, how much more time do we got left on this movie? Yeah, Checking my happen? watch. <laughs> like, oh, we got a whole nother act to go here. Oh, shoot. I thought it was done. <laughs> I agree with you on the characters, too. Like, they just have, they don't have the same staying power as the characters from the first one. Um, and there's there's just a little less magic there. And, and I was even kind of rethinking just Jeff Goldblum's character a little bit and wondering if he functions better as a side character. Um, as opposed to the lead, because I'm with you. I love watching Jeff Goldblum just be Jeff Goldblum. Mm -hmm. But I felt just character wise, he was so much more compelling and interesting as a side character. I also think the movie doesn't quite know what its arc is, right? Like, interestingly, I think Steven Spielberg obviously has some dad stuff. And I think we haven't seen the Fablemans yet, but it's probably going to speak to that more mm -hmm. concretely. The first Jurassic Park is so much about um, what's the main guy's name? Alan Grant. Yeah, about Alan not wanting kids <laughs> mm -hmm. and then getting saddled with these two kids and coming into this like parental role in, in an attempt to protect them. Mm -hmm. This movie's really about dad stuff too, right? Because it's about Jeff Goldblum and his daughter and that's one of the through lines, but that isn't part of the final act at all. Yeah. So I think this film also doesn't necessarily know what it's like emotional or character through line is. Yeah. And that for, for me personally, I struggle when the film doesn't have something else that is being explored beyond just the spectacle. 
Yeah. And it was doing it, and I was interested because there is a lot of dad stuff kind of going on in the first two thirds of the movie. Yeah, and then it just kind of abandons that completely, and the character of his daughter, I don't believe, is in the third act at all. She just comes like she comes in at the very, very end. Yeah, very so that had seemed like it was going to be the key, like ex- exploratory piece, and then it ends up not being. So yeah, I think it did, yeah. didn't quite know what it was doing. You're right, because it kind of drops that just for the ooh ah factor, um, which is it, it. The ooh ah is good, but then it yeah. lost me because I was actually pretty engaged in that story, and then it it kind of disappeared. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. It, it and the beginning, it just feels so. It feels the beginning of the original Jurassic Park. It's a slow burn to us getting to the island. I feel. It's it's even a slow burn to us even seeing dinosaurs. And then this one, I feel like it can't wait to get us to see dinosaurs. Which makes sense because it's the sequel and they're assuming you've already seen the first one, right? Yeah. It's I, the same as any trilogy. Like I look at like Hunger Games or something like that that's not in my brain right now. <laughs> We're like, or, or even like a the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Like we have to build right. into like, what is this world? What are these characters? But with the second one, it's almost like it's one giant movie and we're in the second act for the second one so we can jump right into it. Yeah. Um, and in retrospect, it kind of ends up being the three movies together. How well do they work? Right? Yeah. Um, so I don't blame the film for that. because <laughs> The first three Jurassic Park movies. Do not, don't work well together. Do not mesh well together. Yeah. But in the context of that, right? Like they, they've already done it in the first movie. And I imagine as a seven-year-old who went and saw this in the theater, you were ready to see dinosaurs right away. That's just it. You didn't need them to tease it out. You'd already seen them in the first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, Like as a kid, uh, yeah, I'm here for it. Love yeah. it. Um, but yeah, I just, I felt like this could have used a, a little bit more, a little bit more of the meat that made the first one so good. Um, and I'm a vegetarian, so that says a lot. <laughs> good uh, joke. Thanks. Um, yeah, so how did it make you feel? Kind of bored. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. I mean, it made me feel grateful that I had this as a kid because it was, it's just holds that nostalgic piece of my heart. But I, you know, I don't, I also don't feel that this is a hundred percent necessary. Um, okay. Let's get to the next one. Our, our second movie in two weeks where the third movie ends in P O L I S. Persepolis, and now this. All right. Oh, my God, the coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) You are pulling at threads. Um, Yeah, we went and saw Metropolis. (laughs) 1927. Woo. Yeah, it is a beloved film. It's on the Letterboxd Top 250. Talked about all the time in, like, film history. It's a drama sci-fi. It's a silent film. It was directed by Fritz Lang, and it was written by Fritz Lang and Taya von Harbo, who wrote the novel it's based on. But my understanding is that the novel was written to promote the book. What? The no- Sorry, the novel. <laughs> Let me say this again. My understanding is that the novel was written to promote the film because Taya von Harbo, um, who wrote the novel was like a collaborator with Fritz Lang. So I think it was like a strategic, Mm. strategic thing. Interesting. 
It stars Bridget Helm as Maria, Alfred Abel as Joe Friederson, and Gustav Froelich as Frieder Friederson. Great name. Frieder Friederson. Frieder Friederson. And the synopsis is, in a futuristic city sharply divided between the working class and the city planners, the son of the city's mastermind falls in love with a working class prophet who predicts the coming of a savior to mediate their differences. I didn't know a lot about this film other than it's like really important. It's inspired a lot of people. It's considered one of the greatest films of all time. Um, And Metro Cinema was playing it and we're like, that's a great opportunity to go. So we went and saw it. What'd you think of it? I'm I'm in the same boat. I did not know much of anything other than that this existed and people loved it and it's highly regarded. Uh, it's a highly regarded film. Yeah, it's. I mean, one thing I'll say about it right off the bat is that it's that it's that Twin Peaks thing, and you brought you brought this up after the fact where the way that the story unfolds is so familiar to us because we've seen it so many times done in more recent films but and so seeing it here it's like oh we've kind of seen this before but they did it first Mm -hmm. (laughs) like they were among the first to do this so you have to put yourself in kind of the mindset of a theater goer in 1927 that is seeing something like this that's never been made before and just how mind-blowing that must have been Mm -hmm. and when you when you do that it's it's incredible (laughs) and there are just some absolutely in interesting sequences for a 1927 film that feel so like original and unlike something that would have existed at that time. And you can see how those moments inspired like the David Lynch's and so many of the other filmmakers that are doing more abstract stuff, but that isn't the entirety of the film. I wouldn't say no, it's a long movie, two and a half hours long. Yeah. Um, and those moments I was just like totally in awe of mm-hmm. like that these kinds of things existed in 1927 and seeing something like that and being like, Whoa, yeah, you can do this like totally strange visual abstract thematic stuff in film. And it doesn't have to be just a straight story it was really, really compelling but that is not all of the film. <laughs> it is really long. And that's, I struggled with this when we saw Nosferatu as well, because silent films by their nature kind of have this like repetition of like just people talking, but then we have the intertitle that tells us what they're saying. And then we go back and like see them talking some more. And so I feel like that makes them run longer. And I could do without like seeing those sections, just kind of like people talking, people talking, people talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also understand that that was the nature of the film, right? Yeah. Like that was the nature of what we could do with film at the time. And it was n- necessary for that. Um, and we've shifted and changed as how we can make film has shifted and changed. Yeah. I want to get into, I want to share some of my thoughts on the pacing. But before we get into that, I just, I wanted to touch on the kind of cool history, much like Nosferatu that this has of this film's journey from 1927 to us being able to actually see it in the theater in 2022 in that a lot of this film was lost. Mm-hmm. Like it was missing a lot of footage within, within it and it's still missing footage. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool to see because there's, there's moments throughout the film where some of it's black, like portions of the actual frame are blacked out and it's, 
It's, the footage is really rough. Like yeah. it's, it's clearly scratched and yeah, or burnt or whatever it is. Um, and then for the pieces that are still missing that were never recovered, they just kind of insert these intertitles that explain full scenes of mm-hmm. of sequences of things that happen before we cut before we cut back. It, it was kind of like it kind of reminded me a bit of. Uh, planet terror grindhouse mm. where it's like missing real and then all of a sudden every, all hell break it's cal- calm there's a missing real and then all hell is breaking loose but to what you're saying about the pacing too of you know we're just having these extended scenes of people talking back and forth and it seems like they're saying a lot but then the intertitle has like five words on it <laughs> yeah um i i could actually you know Missing footage or not, even <laughs> I could have used a few more intertitles where they just explained full scenes <laughs> and then we but just cut ahead. I mean, that's the sci-fi of it, right? Like it's there's so much going on and there's so much to dig into. I agree with the like the history being so fascinating. Whenever we and these last two times that we've seen these silent films that ha- kind of have these explanations at the beginning of how they've attempted to piece the film back together and explaining kind of why the footage might look different in different parts makes me just think about like what have we lost that has never been recovered and we don't even know it exists and we don't know that it ever existed or Mm -hmm. there's no part of it that remains like just the ephemeral the ephemeral nature of some of these things is fascinating to me Mm -hmm. and so watching this really brings that into like a tangible reality um i was also really moved by how full the theater was like it it was a yeah. Wednesday night for a two and a half hour silent film mm-hmm. and it was really busy, which yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah. I've been kind of really taken with um, the, the last few movies we've gone to see at Metro of just seeing the response of people in, in terms of how many people are actually coming to the theater to see some of these films. And it is cold in Edmonton right now and it's the cold. roads are bad. Yeah. It's, it's been really bad. I mean, there's been some nights where, we probably shouldn't have even made the trek to Metro, but the fact that we did and many other people also did is really cool. And it's a testament to the programming and wanting to share these films. I mean, this is the second silent film that we've seen this year. And I don't think we would have watched them had they not played at Metro. Probably not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it was the thing that finally made us go, Oh yeah, let's watch it because it's playing at Metro and Mm -hmm. it's something we've always wanted to watch, but when we're at home, we're not often like, oh, yeah, let's put on a two and a half hour silent film. Although there are people who do. Yeah. And that's cool. And that is cool. The, people were really into this movie. Like there was clapping and whooping and yeah, um, clearly folks who have seen this many times and love it. And there are some elements that are just so, so interesting and visually compelling. And mm-hmm. you can see where the history of film has been inspired by this and like the history of science fiction. Yeah, there's yeah, there's some really remarkable set pieces um, and dance moves. <laughs> there movie. are some incredible <laughs> dance moves. What I will say is, um, in reading some of the trivia for this, sounds like Fritz Lang, the director, was um, very Stanley Kubrick, very Lars von Trier, oh, um, and was very demanding of his cast and crew. Hmm. So Bridget Helm, who is, I think, the heart of this film, yeah. They made her be in the Machine Man costume, even though it could have been anyone in there. Mm-hmm. And it was like really, really hot and painful and uncomfortable, um, including in like a sequence with fire, which was really dangerous. 
And she, after the film, said it was a strenuous and dangerous like experience. Also, considering the themes and morals of the film, um, there are twenty five. There were twenty five thousand extras, and um, they were mostly like folks living in poverty or like without any income, and they didn't get paid particularly well, from my understanding. Don't like that, which is an interesting thing considering what the film is about. Um, but I mean, it's auteurs. I tell you, they've like, always existed. It's like the Wizard of Oz too. I mean, it's yeah. a movie about positivity and magic, and you. You read up on some of the the history of that stuff, and it is it's not good. Yeah, and I mean, it's you can see that history of like forgiving or giving passes to like brilliant artists because they're making brilliant art, and like how that has persisted through time. Um, well, even just. It seems like even filmmaking today and the pr- the whole production process of making a film is still changing and adapting. I just watched, um, I, th- I think it's I think it's the Hollywood Reporter puts at the roundtable discussions, and they had um, a, an actress roundtable, um, so with a bunch of folks. Um, so uh, some of them were like Michelle Yeoh, Daniel Deadweiler, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. And they were all kind of talking about what it's like because many of them have uh, made films directed by women mm-hmm. that they're promote- promoting right now. And they said like the set is just w- – the productions led by women are more organized. They're more flexible. They're more understanding. There's there's less like ego and attitude that happens on set. So and, – and there's less pressure to be like, okay – we're going to work a 12 hour day and not go past that. Whereas like you're with pr- presumably with male directors, it's about, you know, appealing to their ego and one cause it, and, and wanting statements here. And, and wanting them to, <laughs> and wanting them to like you, like they could, they've said like, it's about wanting the director to like you. Cause if that director doesn't, they can make your life for the rest of the, the filming process. Hell. I'm sure at the same time, though, that there's women directors who can be like that. And clearly, I think Michelle Yeoh has spoken about the experience on everything everywhere all at once with two male directors not being like that. Yeah. Um, But I think there's a history of who has been making film and who has been like allowed to get away with this kind of behavior for the sake of art. Yeah. Um, And... I am thankful for the directors, regardless of gender, who are attempting to shift that. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I was more so sharing that because, yeah, it, it, like I just wanted to highlight that you know we're looking at the conditions on a 1927 set, and then conditions even today, and yeah. how they're still evolving. Like they're yep. they're still not perfect, even yeah. in that long stretch of time since the 20s that films have been being made there's still things that fall through the cracks. There's still, I I mean, I feel even like a, there's intimacy coordinators on set now for intimate scenes on films, which is a very new thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's ever evolving. Yeah. And this was, um, I don't know if I've spoken about this on the show, but in Sarah Pauly, who's the new director, or she not new director, but the director of the new film women talking, um, wrote in her biography that came out or her like, memoir-esque it's a series of essays personal essays um run towards the danger about her experiences of being a child actor and particularly on terry gilliam's 
film and then on her, I can't remember what the film was called. Um, and then on her uh, time on the like Anne of Green Gables show wrote Davinlee or it's like by the same writer. Mm -hmm. um, and like speaking about directors, not understanding the degree to which being a child actor is like already a like messed up thing. Yeah. Um, and like some of this experience she's, she's had talking to people as an adult who she worked with when she was a child. So yeah, there's so many things going on in what it takes to make a film. And I think you get these varying perspectives after the case, but I think looking at something from 1927 and seeing these things that still exist today is kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I hate to hear that narrative of like, well, it had to happen to make this brilliant film because yeah. there's so many brilliant films where stuff like this doesn't happen. And like, yeah, it sounds like it was a very, very, very difficult shoot for everyone involved. And I don't to... doubt it because the scale of this film, like to get back to talking about the actual film, the scale of it is just unreal for well, the 1920s. Well, yeah. I mean, and I imagine it was grueling given that, what do you say, like over 20,000 people? 25,000 extras? extras, yeah. Like that's, that is insane. Mm -hmm. Now you just fill it with CGI people. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, probably. <laughs> But, like, I can't imagine, because, I mean, the sets themselves were so large and grand and and amazing, and then filling it with 20,000 people. I mean, you're probably breaking all kinds of fire codes and stuff like that. To, and to wrangle that many people and to get them to do exactly what you want, I can imagine that there was a lot of, a lot of feelings on that set. And, yeah, just difficult to manage, I imagine. Like, it. It's just wild. Yeah, and finding like ways to kind of exploit the people you're trying to not exploit in your film. It's I mean, I don't I'm not saying that he like set out to do that. I think it's the condition of of what happened and it's like a little yeah. there's there's an interesting and, yeah. and troubling history with this film cuz like also I guess the Nazi party was like a really big fan of it. Uh, um and mm. which seems strange considering the message of the film mm -hmm. um and fritz lang was a jewish man mm -hmm. and apparently there's a story that goes that like members of the nazi party told him that he would be like an honorary aryan mm. and they wouldn't consider him jewish but he like left the country anyway and that this was like one of hitler's favorite films um and that's just very that that is not the fault of the film at all. No, clearly. but as a filmmaker, especially as a Jewish filmmaker, I feel like that'd be that would be such a complicated thing. I can't even imagine. So there's such a like dense, complex matrix of things going on when you look at the history of this film. Like, think of it in the contemporary moment when it was made in the 1920s. Think of like how parts of it have been lost. Think of the different ways it's been taken up because it can be seen as a sci-fi film. It can be seen as like a parable on like working class conditions. Yeah. And there's so many different ways to look at it. What I think is really interesting is he was inspired, like Fritz Lang was inspired to make this film after visiting New York for the first time. Oh, so I have yeah. a quote from him. Um, where he said, when he saw the skyscrapers in New York, quote, the buildings seemed to be a vertical sail, scintillating and very light, a luxurious backdrop suspended in the dark sky to dazzle, distract, and hypnotize. Mm. And that's where he kind of 
I feel the that. visual landscape of Metropolis came yeah. to be. And those parts of the films are of the film, sorry, are just so engaging and really was taken by it. Yeah. I totally feel that. Yeah, like the actual city itself, it, it feels so like World's Fairy. You know, like how World's Fair is or like the city of the future kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If I get so much of that vibe in there. That's so cool. That's a cool. That's a cool pull quote. I like that. <laughs> IMDb trivia. It's where I go. It's great. I also am like really compelled to see this. I guess in the 1980s, somebody named Georgie Moritor made his a version of this called Georgie Moritor Presents Metropolis, which changed out the intertitles for subtitles so they could cut parts of the film. So it cut it down and changed all the music to like 1980s synth music. That's sick. I I want to see that. I want to see it too. Is that, is that somewhere? Is that anywhere? Uh, It's probably on YouTube. Let's see. 1980s. Yeah, it's all, it's on um, YouTube. That's sick. Even just like watching a little bit of that, just to check it out. I'm so curious. That's awesome. There's one, there's one more thing that I want to say about this. And I felt this way the whole way through the movie. And I feel like you did too. But this movie wanted to be gay so badly. <laughs> yeah. It's so close. So many shots of dudes just like grabbing each other's faces and pulling in each other's faces so close to each other. Like you're, you're already there. Just like a quick would have been just cherry on top. Yeah. 1927. You think that's going to happen? Oh, man. Can you imagine? Maybe there's some deleted footage somewhere. <sighs> That's what's lost is a little, is a little kisses. The little kisses. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating film. I don't know that I would love to have a silent film eventually win me over and, and be something that I just am so taken with. Mm-hmm. And I think to really appreciate these films, I have to put myself in the mindset of like the history of film, the mm-hmm. history of these particular films and like the place they have in cinema in general. Yeah. But I'm so, so grateful for not only the opportunity to see it, but the opportunity to see it in the theater. Yep. How did Metropolis make you feel? Exactly that. It made me feel grateful that we got to see this film at all because much like the same feelings with Nosferatu. I mean, the fact that we're able to actually go to a theater and watch these films from the twenties is incredible. Um, And that they've been able to stand the test of time and, remain so relevant is pretty awesome all that said i i did feel a little bored at some at some points um because yeah i i agree i i'm still waiting for that silent film and i I hope it's out there that silent film that just sweeps me up and is just one of my favorite things what about you yeah pretty much the same it just made me really appreciative of the history of film and of like metro cinema's curation um and I felt like I was kind of viewing this from that like a more objective, detached point of view. Hmm. And I think that's okay. It is okay. That is okay. Very different experience with our next film. Yeah. We went back to Metro. And Spent three days in a row there. Going to make a fourth one yeah. right away here. <laughs> uh, we went and saw the 2022 drama mystery, The Eternal Daughter. It was written and directed by Johanna Hogg. And stars Tilda Swinton in a dual role as Julie Hart and Rosalind Hart. Uh, it also stars Carly Sophia Davies as the hotel receptionist. Uh, Joseph Meidel as Bill. And 
Louis as Louis the dog, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who stole the show. But the synopsis is returning to a hotel now haunted by its mysterious past. An artist and her elderly mother confront long buried secrets in their former family home. So Tilda Swinton plays the artist and the elderly mother. Uh, what do you think of the internal dog? I really liked this movie. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I had to sit with it a little bit and just, and, and just kind of let it, let myself stew in it a little bit, but you were very immediately like, bam. Perfect. Oh yeah. I, I loved it. It like bowled me over. I, I mean, so it starts with the vibes. Yeah. 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 The vibes of this film, it very particularly, I don't know if you have this experience. I'm sure somebody listening has this experience of working somewhere quite large that you work at alone and there's no one else there. Mm-hmm. So I worked at a bowling alley for about a year and a half after I graduated high school. And in the summer, like people weren't really coming in during the day. So it didn't make sense to staff for more than one person, but they did have it open. And so I would just be in this like quite large space all by myself where if I you know, went into the kitchen because I was running basically a kitchen bar and bowling alley. There's bathrooms. There's like the back room where all of the like pins are like the actual like kind of eerie construction-y mm. mechanical area. Mm-hmm. Um, we had like a arcade slash party area. And if I went to one of those areas and someone came in, I would never know. Yeah. And there was just this like fundamental constant eerie tension when Mm. I would be working there alone. It's also something that I experience on like the very odd time that I go in to to like the school that I work at on a weekend or in the summer when no one else is there. Mm. Like it feels apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Ghost town. And that's like the feeling of this film. Yeah. I I had a similar thing when I worked at the movie theater. um, If I was closing and I was the last one closing, I, I did. And I don't know why I did this. Because I was taught to do it this way and I never changed, but I would shut off all the breakers to all of the theaters before going to check them. So I would go and check them with a flashlight. So I'm in this empty movie theater having to go up and down the aisles and check all the doors and like just with like a flashlight. And that's the vibe of this film, right? Yeah. It's just, you know, you, you know, there's nothing there. But there could be something there. Yeah. And it's just this constant lingering tension. Yeah. Um, so I loved that. I thought it was stunningly beautiful. Like visually yeah. just totally engrossing in that gothic way. Yeah. I, I will say to just kind of pulling it back about the film after seeing it, um, we were, I was kind of reading like a lot of people are kind of, I wouldn't say let down, but they're a little bit surprised of what the movie's actually about because it, it's kind of mismarketed a little bit. It's kind of marketed and it leans kind of towards like horror a little bit. I mean, if you look anything up about it, it doesn't say it's horror, but the trailer suggests seems it. more horror-ish. And then yeah. I think some people attach it, like CA24 and think hereditary and... Mm-hmm. that kind of thing and it's it's not a horror movie at all no it's really not like i mean it, it shares more with gothic horror but even then it's not a horror film yeah 
but and I feel like that's where it sings because we were talking after the movie and made this connection, and I think it's it's totally accurate of that gothic horror feel that exists within Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House or even Haunting of Bly Manor, where it's kind of it's quiet. This film is quiet, haunting, and has a sadness to it and a heaviness to it. But there's also that kind of that very subtle fear that we're talking about that kind of exists across the whole movie, Mm -hmm. which just makes it such a compelling experience overall. Yeah. The, uh, let's talk about the Tilda Swinton of it all. Tildy's great. I I love watching Tildy. I really like her. Do you know that Louie is her dog? Okay. So you found out. Yeah. That is amazing. So that's why he's so chill in this movie. He's one of her real dogs. I get it. Yeah. Uh, and Louis is his name. That's so great. That's so good. Yeah. Louis in this film, he's just, he's so chill. He's so, he's just, he's just a sweetie. And every time, every time he's on screen, he's usually sleeping or something, but he, he's so funny. There, there's shots of him like laying on his back or just curled up. It's great. So, and it makes sense that he'd be so chill with his mama there. (laughs) But Tilda Swinton is fantastic in this. And I mean, what a, it's so interesting because for some reason I really um, like I sometimes will even mistake a film that Tilda Swinton was in with Kate Blanchett or vice versa. Yeah. And then they were both in Pinocchio mm-hmm. and then Metro was playing eternal daughter and then tar right after So I'm like real. We didn't go see it cause we've already seen tar, but a real Kate Blanchett Tilda Swinton week. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's just Tilda Swinton is so good in this. Like I, think it's a bit of a shame that it's not she hasn't been nominated for anything because i think she's doing incredible work here Mm -hmm. she's just so mesmerizing and everything like she just she can do subtle really well but she can also go really big she also has great hair yeah she does this is true and you know the whole i mean just because you do a dual role doesn't necessarily mean that like you should win awards for it but she does a great job here and mm-hmm. you really feel, I think that's the, that's the kind of mark of a, of a great actor is that you're able to make those feel like two distinct people. Yeah. And the way that this is shot is gorgeous. Like you said, like, there's a lot of shots that just linger. And we, I feel like we might see this in that horror film we're looking forward to skin rink where it's just, it, it just holds on an image that just, there's an eeriness to mm-hmm. it. And and a lot of repetition too. We kind of return to the same shot multiple times, um, and there might be something like a different action going on or something like that. But it's always just kind of subtle. But we do that with actions too. We return the same thing kind of happens a few times throughout the film, and it just kind of discombobulates you a little bit, and it, it messes with: is this real? Is this not real? Am I in a different timeline? Like where? What's going on? But again, that's what makes you lean in that's what pulls you forward and throughout the whole thing and this is our first joanna hogg movie but mm-hmm. it makes me really want to see the souvenir and other other work that she's done because it's so it's so subtle but so powerful yeah, and it seems highly personal too which is really yeah really engaging as someone who like i've struggled with the fact that when I write, I really only am interested in writing about my own life. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, what, how interesting is that? But based on what I've read about the souvenir and and what I glean from seeing this film, it seems like she's doing that with cinema. Yeah. And I'm like, I, 
it made me kind of validate a little bit for me, like what I do with writing, even though I'm mm. clearly not, <laughs> I'm not Joanna Hogg. I'm not, <laughs> my writing is currently just for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I really like the personal element in this film or what felt at least like a personalization within the film. Mm-hmm. Um, someone in our audience gasped yeah, really yeah. intensely. And it was such a quiet moment, like in the, in the film itself. So that gasp filled the theater. (laughs) I mean, it was an appropriate time for it, but I was like surprised at how like punctuated that gasp was. But just a testament to how engaging the film is Mm because the audience wasn't, it wasn't packed, but the, for the few people that were in there, obviously it was having an effect on them enough to have them be like, because even in that, in that same moment, I'm like, whoa, yeah, it's this is a so movie well. that like, it's like a lingering movie. Like even when you're watching it, it's like li- lingering. Like what just happened is still in the back of your mind as the scene moves forward. And mm-hmm. I feel like it continues to do that after the fact as well. This would be a great double feature with After Sun. Yeah. Great triple feature with Petite Mama and After Sun, mm-hmm. um, I think. I had, so somebody that I follow on Letterboxd um, put this in their review and I just loved this so much and i think it's a great note to like end talking about this film on mm-hmm. um so they said that the eternal daughter is one of those movies to chat about with someone smart on a brisk walk home oh my god and i thought that was like one of the most beautiful things i've ever read in my life that's so that's so good you say it again one of those movies to chat about with someone smart on a brisk walk home i've never heard something more accurate <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's so true. That's great. Fits the vibe. 100%. That's the vibe of this movie. Yeah, I loved it. I really, really loved it. I can't wait to watch it again. I think it's one I'm going to keep returning to. Mm-hmm. How did it make you feel? Sad and reflective and totally engaged. Yeah. Chef's kiss. <laughs> what about you? Made me feel reflective. Uh, liminal. Like really... Mm kind of suspended um and and melancholic yeah there's like a a melancholy to the sadness that i felt yeah man i really really liked it and i'm interested in seeing some of her other work after this i don't think it's an everybody film mm-hmm. it's a you said you leaned over at one point and said it's a nothing happens but the vibes and we were only like 10 minutes into the movie yeah yeah um and this is true <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i love nothing happens but the vibes yeah it's, you know, I know that not every A24 film is a banger, but this year they've been doing really great. They choose to take on some really cool projects and they know it. <laughs> there are a lot we haven't seen, though, yeah. to be fair. Even this year. Some, yeah. yeah, some we haven't seen, but yeah. Good on them. Bless them. Quit putting cool stuff in your shop and making us want to buy it. We have a variable rate mortgage. <laughs> okay final film of the week near and dear to the old kylie over here the old kylie (laughs) geez louise um so we're finally getting in the christmas spirit i will also say the eternal daughter is an is a christmas film yeah comes up in the end yeah i think at the beginning i'm like is this a christmas movie and by the the very last 10 minutes you're like oh it's okay it is so we are trickling our way to christmas and this was the start of what will be nothing but christmas movies for a week um metro cinema was playing tim burton's the nightmare before christmas 
1993 film, animated family fantasy film. Metro was doing two showings. They had a one of their real family cinemas that we've talked about where like kids under 12 can go for free. And I think that might have been last week. I don't know. Happened at some point. And then they did a like a 7 p.m. nighttime showing on a Saturday night. And I was like, let's go to the nighttime show. Yeah. It was very busy, which I loved yeah. to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so this film, Nightmare Before Christmas, was directed by Henry Selleck, even though People tend to think it was directed by Tim Burton, and I'm going to tell you a bit of some uh, hot tea. Some hot tea later about Ooh. that. It was written by Michael McDowell and Carolyn Thompson, but Tim Burton would probably be mad at us if we did not say that it is based on a story and characters by him, by Tim Burton, none other than my father. Um, he's not actually my dad, but same last name. It stars a lot of people, but I'm going to break it down to Danny Elfman and Chris Sarandon as Jack Skellington. Danny Elfman as the vocals, Chris Sarandon as the speaking voice, and the incomparable Catherine O'Hara as Sally. Synopsis, Jack Skellington, king of Halloween town, discovers Christmas town, but his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. Ah. I know you've seen Nightmare Before Christmas before, but what did you think this time? First of all, I was like, I know Chris Sarandon from something. What is it? He's in Princess Bride. It's Prince Humperdinck. <laughs> like the guy she's supposed to marry. I don't even remember <laughs> Prince Humperdinck. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, for me, I yeah, I've seen this before. Uh, I saw it when I was a little kid. It wasn't a staple for me because we, we didn't own it, rented it a few times. But I, I remember when I when I first saw it, it kind of scared me a little bit. But I, I did like that. <laughs> so I saw it. I saw it again. The opening sequence is actually pretty freaky for a kid. It is. It's definitely a good litmus test of will your kid be able to sit through a whole movie of this if they can't even get through the opening number. Yeah. That said, the opening number is so good, and every time the introduction of Jack Skellington gives me chills every time I but watch the it. The friggin' music that don't don't. But then the swell when he when he's revealed is so good. No, that whole yeah, the whole this is Halloween is just one of the best things ever created ever. Yeah, it's uh, prove me wrong. It's solid. Even the opening when we're in the forest and it's revealing all the trees and then the pumpkin opens and we go in. It's like oh, here we go, (laughs) here we go. Um, yeah, again, love, love, love stop motion animation. Oh, and it is just. It's so amazing in this. Like the characters are, there's a reason everyone, including me, so many people want to have Christmas ornaments and little display items and so many other purchasable things with the characters from Nightmare Before Christmas on it because they are so whimsically, creepily, incredibly created. Well, it's it's why there's an evergreen section for Nightmare Be- Nightmare Before Christmas in ho- every hot topic across the world, <laughs> <laughs> and like why Hallmark Christmas ornaments will always predominantly be Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, and they they tapped into something that is definitely subject for many debates, but they tapped into something here that could be watched at Halloween or at Christmas. I think it's a Christmas movie. I agree. I feel like there's arguments to go the other way. I think there's arguments for it to be both. But 
I, I'm with you. I, this is Christmas movie for me. Do you know the story of how Tim Burton conceptualized this? No. You really don't? I don't think so. Um, this is what I've heard. I hope that it's true. <laughs> was that he was passing by a store window that had had a like display of Halloween stuff and they were transitioning to Christmas stuff. And he oh, saw yeah. the mixing of the two, like as they were taking down the Halloween stuff and some Christmas stuff had put up, been put up seeing the two together. And there is something so fundamentally compelling about the crashing of Halloween with Christmas because they are so diametrically opposed. Mm -hmm. Like one is about joy and cheer and gifts and the other is about darkness and trickery and, you know, like. But just like the, just the thing that we're exposed to just as humans is the marketing so quickly wanting to make that shift for us. Like we move, we, it's like Halloween's over on the 31st of October and, and by Christmas November begins. 1st, Christmas is Well, starting. that happened this year. I went to on November 1st to try and get some discounted Halloween candy, but what was up was all the advent calendars. Yeah. And I mean, that's particularly true in Canada where our Thanksgiving is in early October, not mm -hmm. in November, right? Mm -hmm. So we, it really is the next hol holiday after Halloween is Christmas. Um, but there is just something so compelling about putting those two together. Like we really like black Christmas, mm -hmm. you know, we like Krampus. Some people love Krampus. Like there's just something really rife about the mixing of the two mm -hmm. and putting it here for kids. Yeah. So good. Well, and there's something about eighties, nineties, Tim Burton. I just, he, he, the, the guy has such an aesthetic. Like you can just look at some something and you just know it came from the mind of Tim Burton. Okay, so do you want to hear the tea then? I do. Okay, so this is this is a direct paragraph long quote from IMDb Trivia. So quote, there's something of a controversy over exactly who has the rights to call the story and film their own. Henry Selleck is the director and spent more time on the set and production than Tim Burton. However, Burton has often claimed he is the owner of the story as it was all his idea. He wrote the original poem and most of the script, created the character, served as a producer, and even wanted to direct, but was simply too busy at the time to do so. Popular culture has long accepted the film as Burton's, as the film's heading is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Burton does reinforce the fact that Selleck directed the film and is often annoyed that people don't remember him for that. On the direction of the film, Selleck reflected, quote, it is as though he laid the egg and I sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hand is in it. It was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films. When Sorry, I, that was Henry, Henry Selleck saying that about, about Tim, Tim Burton. Burton? Okay. When asked about Burton's involvement, Selleck claimed, quote, I don't want to take away from Tim, but he was not in San Francisco when we made it. He came up five times over two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total. Walt Disney Feature Animation contributed with some use of second layering traditional animation. Burton found production somewhat difficult because he was directing Batman Returns and in pre-production of Edward. Mm, okay. But I really, that part where he says it was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film is so interesting. Because it looks like a Tim Burton film. It does. And I think people like, you know, Henry Selleck made James and the Giant Peach and he made Coraline and he made that new Wendell and Wild, which I really want to see. Mm -hmm. He also um, made Monkey Bone. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that as a kid. I haven't seen it in a long time. I mean, Brendan Fraser is having a, uh, a resurgence. So maybe it's time to revisit Monkey Bone. <laughs> I have a feeling it's uh, not great. I think it's like but a I do think something. even... 
though I agree with him that there's some similarities in aesthetics. And I think sometimes people like think Coraline was made by Tim Burton, which mm -hmm. it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, there is something just so fundamentally Tim Burton about this movie. Yes. Yeah. So he did a good job of that. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I hate to think that there's animosity or anything, or if in fact that does exist or anything like that, because I feel like Henry Selleck got the assignment and nailed it. But it must be such a tricky thing because one of the things that I, so I've been watching this film since I was three, since it came out. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a staple in my home and we watched it all the time as a family. I watched it all the time on my own. And it's hard to acknowledge that this is so beloved by everybody <laughs> because <laughs> it feels so personal to me. And it, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it is just literally something that I've loved since it existed like I didn't discover it later in life. It is part of like my, it's part of my horror journey, right? Like early Tim yeah. Burton films as a kid from the nineties who grew up like not even yet being able to speak, but watching Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. I was, yeah, I was going to, I was going to ask like, why do you love it so much? But is that the reason it's why? It's like part of my DNA. Like I've just, <laughs> I've been watching and these were films we watched as a family. Like we all watched Beetlejuice. We all watched Edward Scissorhands. We all watched Nightmare Before Christmas. And I feel like it's the start of my horror journey. It's the mm -hmm. start of my like being drawn to the outcast, like liking things that are just a little bit left of center. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to acknowledge that everybody loves these movies. Yes, uh, It's not just me. But one of the things that I've noticed the more I watch this as an older person, as an adult, is that it zips. Yeah. Like there is no fluff in this movie. No. And I've been wondering if that was because of how strenuous making the film was. Like, so for every one second of film, 12 stop motion moves had to be made and it took three years to make the entire movie. So I wonder if it's just like, well, if it takes us this long to get one second of film, we have to make sure that there is not a wasted second. Mm -hmm. And so the film is, it is fast. It moves. Mm -hmm. Like it feels from the time he gets to Christmas town to the time of Oogie Boogie is just like a blink of an eye. Yeah. And so I can see how Henry Selleck would be like, yes, it was Tim Burton's idea, but who spent three years making this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that would be really tough to, um, what's eight to 10 days on set compared over three to years. three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so, so tricky. And I, um, at the same time though, like it, it is so clearly Tim Burton's world. Yeah. And I read how he, um, I guess Disney wanted Jack Skellington to have eyes. Mm. Mm. And Tim Burton was the one who put his foot down and was like, he absolutely will not have eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and there was a different ending in mind for the film. And apparently Tim Burton put his foot through a wall when they <laughs> suggested it to him. Um, and then they like cut that portion of the wall out and framed it. <laughs> That's amazing. But like, so he he obviously it was a passion project for him and it sounds like he would have made it if he could, but he had contractual contractual obligations to make Batman Returns. Um, so tricky though. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, because yeah, I feel like you just kind of, when you're a kid, you're just like, oh yeah, Tim Burton, this is, this is his jam. But once you get older and you see that Henry Selleck made it and then you go through the things that Henry Selleck has made since... Like he, 
He's just the guy you go to when you want to make stop motion. Oh, Coraline is so good. And yeah. I really do want to see Wendell and Wilde. It just hasn't been something we've been able to see yet. Do you know what I saw that got me really excited, but also disappointed, is that he is attached to be the director on a adaptation of the game Little Nightmares as a TV show. And the showrunners are the Russo brothers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Little Nightmares is a great game. Yeah, it's awesome. But like a stop motion animation version of that directed by Henry Selick. I mean, it got greenlit in 2017 and has not moved since. So yeah. it might be dead in the water. But oh my God, that got me so excited. It's just he's so good with with vibes. And I, I get that people can equate that with Nightmare Before Christmas because it was the first full length fully stop motion feature. I don't know. I feel like I heard that and I'm just like, I heard that somewhere and I'm like, okay, this is gospel. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's true. No, it's 1925's The Lost World. See, Well, that says the first feature length film to make extensive use of. Because I feel like there's people in that and then they have like stop motion stuff in there as well. Oh, Gumby. My sister loved Gumby. How long is a Gumby movie though? Is Gumby a movie or is it a TV show? That's a great question. I feel like it's a TV show. Uh, I don't think that this is the first full length stop okay. motion animation, but I think it is one of the like, it's the first one for me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, I did grow up with Rudolph too, but this was like Rudolph was decidedly just at Christmas and I feel like I watched this a little bit more often. So but, what is it about stop motion that you love so much? I mean, the craft of it. Everything is tangible and you, especially as you get older, you you just start to really appreciate the creativity of it all and the the ingenuity that has to happen because the fact that everything is scaled down so small and then it's just singular frames put together to make fluid and it creates fluid motion is just it's just nuts yeah i don't know it just it feels so magical i think it's for me it's like the tactile nature of it yeah like everything feels so it's it's the great kind of balance between live action and animation. What was really cool about it is like when you have, as we do, say like a Jack Skellington Christmas ornament, it looks exactly mm-hmm. like the Jack Skellington on screen because here's a little clay thing and that was a little clay thing. Yeah, It's not a rendering in a different material. and Like it feels like it can exist and there's just something so... Like, it feels like you could live in there, mm-hmm. but not in a real life way. I don't know. It's so cool. I just love it so much. Yeah. We have, we got a set of ornaments with like diff- Jack's different faces this year. And I've watched so many behind the scene features of Nightmare Before Christmas and watched how like, that's what they did. They had just like different heads with different expressions and that's what they would change out. Mm-hmm. So I love those ornaments because yeah. it feels like we could like make a little stop motion film of our own with him, but Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I just love it. And Danny Elfman's music. I mean, he, his music is so iconic across the board, but doing this like full on musical and the numbers are so great. And just, again, he perfectly blends the, that, that Halloween feeling with the Christmas feeling. What's your favorite song? Hmm. I, th- I think it's This Is Halloween. Very close second is the What's This? What about you? I love Kidnap Mr. Sandy Claus. <laughs> I want to do it. Let's draw straws. <laughs> yeah. 
I love the clawfoot tub with like real feet. Right. Yeah, yeah. I love lock, stock, and barrel. I just think or lock, shock, and barrel. Um, I just I I I just love this movie, and I just can't deny it. That's great. I'm so happy that you still like revel in it because I I feel like it's that thing where, you know, you do. You either let the uh, hot topic girl flag fly, or you uh, you fly it at half mast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I usually fly it at half mast, but um, not when it comes to this. Not movie. when it comes to Nightmare Before Christmas. And like, can we just talk about Catherine O'Hara? Yeah, like how we. I don't think I ever knew that that's who this was, and mm-hmm. then you know, Shit's Creek just like bringing her the glory she has always deserved. And being like, she's friggin' Sally? Like, who who doesn't love Sally? Mm-hmm. I dressed up as Sally in grade 10. My mom made me a costume. It was amazing. Um, the music is so good. The visuals are so good. The story is so fast and, like, perfect. Yeah. And uh, one, of my, one of the people I follow on Letterboxd said it's their favorite movie about a white guy realizing he doesn't have to be the center of the universe. <laughs> 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 I think that's awesome. <laughs> that he should listen to the woman in his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. And Oogie Boogie is such a great, creepy character. The music is so good. I just I love this movie so much. It's just all, it's a, it's like a, what, hour and 10 minute? Just Something like that. Beautiful, tight, little fun package. To throw on every holiday season. And it looked amazing on the big screen. Yeah. And this, they had this sound pumping for this. Felt it in my bones. It was great. How'd this movie make you feel? Um, Just happy. I love getting to watch this movie with you because I know how important it is to you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I just had like a big goofy grin on my face the whole movie. Yeah. And, and at this point, we just like nudge each other throughout the whole movie of, on like the bits that we love. Yeah, I know this movie to death. Like I know... Pulling out half the brain. I love the, they're trying to hit us. Zero. (laughs) And you know my favorite line in the whole movie, yes? Yeah, go for it. I'm only an elected official. I can't make these decisions by myself. (laughs) (laughs) I love that line. I just, I love the mayor with his face turning around. I love the masks that the lock, shock, and barrel wear. I love when she eats the soup with like the holes in it and the way the soup comes through. I just like, I love this movie and it is, I've been watching it since I was a toddler. It is in my bones. I can't not love it. Mm. So how it makes me feel just like absolutely delighted. Just pure delight. It's great. And it will never not make me feel that way. So I guess I'm a hot topic girl to the end. Hey, live your truth. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay, that's it. Let's talk about some dads of the week. Bad dads, rad dads. Who's your bad dad nominee? I have nominated Joe Friederson. Joe Friederson. From Metropolis. The dad in Metropolis. The dad. Yeah. Yes. That's a good pick. (laughs) You don't sound convinced. No, that is. Yeah, yeah. Tell me why. Well, he's just the 1%, man. Like. Yeah. He's the worst dad in the world. He's Jeff Bezos. Like. Yes. he's hypocritical he's selfish he's uncommunicative he's sneaky he doesn't know what he wants until it's too friggin late like mm-hmm. he is the ultimate capitalist bad dad yeah who the heck did you say is it count volpe from P- pinocchio 
I think Joe Friederson's worse, my man. Like, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of traits from Joe Friederson that you could put onto Count Volpe, like just the, the valuing of success and fortune over other people, uh, even close people that are close to you. But I feel like, I mean, he's bad, he's despicable. I think, yeah, I feel like Joe can take this one. It's Joe's, Joe's stinky poo poo. He's real bad. Yeah. All right. Go Friederson. Go away. Kick rocks. Yeah. You stink. Rad dad. You go. I picked Julie from the Eternal Daughter. Oh, interesting. Um, I I just really liked that she was somebody that was taking control of her life and was managing her needs and what she needed uh, to work through the things that she's going through. And I saw, I saw in her, there was a lot of reflection and you know not she she wasn't just like stubborn set in her ways like and i i appreciate i i so appreciate in a parental figure the ability to reflect and to step back and evaluate oneself before necessarily moving forward or um you know just making making selfish decisions because selfish is the the bullet that'll get you <laughs> that'll get you a bad dad <laughs> this is true um but yeah who's yours I said Eddie Carr from The Lost World. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He's an MVP. There's one scene where, in particular where he's just the MVP. Yeah, I, that's what I've written. MVP, resourceful, kind. Oh, man. I love that. I love how like introspective and like thoughtful mine is. And then yours is just like the tech guy from Lost World. <laughs> Jurassic Park. The field worker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I struggle with the idea of Julie because, oh, I don't know. It's so hard to get into it without spoilers. But I think I can. I think I can agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's also just like Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta admit that in that singular moment, he is the raddest dad. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not sustained throughout the film, so I'll let you. I'll let you have this one. <laughs> but he is a rad dad in that moment. He's an honorary rad dad. Yes. A mini rad dad. Okay, so Julie, an eternal daughter, be Your our dad. dad. I have a daddy. Oh, damn. Is it Eddie? <laughs> Who is it? Jack Skellington. Oh, my God. <laughs> the bone daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week's bone daddy. <laughs> bone daddy of the week. Hey, you can't tell me Jack Skellington isn't hot. Yeah, he's got the magician's body. Which is... You My love, preferred body type. You, you love a long boy. I love a long, long boy. I yeah. I uh, magician's body. Anyone on any of any gender, I'm probably going to be like, going to give you a second look. <laughs> so even if you're a skeleton, you got a magician's body. I'm going to be like, huh? You want to steal Christmas? <laughs> you got a magician's body. We can talk. We can work it out. Zero. They're trying to thirst trap us. <laughs> Jack Skellington is a babe. Come on. Yeah. No. Totally. All right. The Pumpkin King himself, Jack Skellington. We. We. Woo. woo. All right. Brad wreck of the week. We have been kind of throwing in a. We were throwing in a bit of a lighter show to kind of break up our our week of movies, and we recently watched the full first season of an HBO max exclusive series called the big brunch um it's a it's a cooking show based around you you guessed it brunch but it's show ran and hosted by the 
very lovely Dan Levy uh, from Schitt's Creek. Uh, I really like him. I just like, I think he's a really cool, he just seems like a really cool, lovely person. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's got a great energy. And he brings that into all of his roles too, um, which I really like. But the show is totally lovely. It's a, it's a cooking competition between a bunch of normies <laughs> and they have a couple of other additional judges come in uh, with Dan Levy and they and they judge all the dishes. Um, and it's it's kind of it's kind of a cool thing. And the the cast that they got is really great. And it's it's a little bit messy at the beginning because it's just it feels like they need they needed a few episodes to find their footing as to like what the what the flow of the show was going to be like. But it, there's a little bit of charm in that, which we we which which we kind of liked. But if you like a fun, easy breezy cooking show, a la Great British Break, Bake Off or anything like that, you'll probably like the Big Brunch. So if you have HBO Max or Crave wherever you are, check out the Big Brunch. Super lovely. But thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. And till then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Uh, get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would love you forever if you could drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening from. And like Kylie said off the top, a great holiday present would be sharing us with people in your lives and letting them know that worth a listen and worth a little hangout once a week so we would love that that is going to do it for these two stinkies happy holidays everybody get ready for a christmas packed episode next week yep and maybe a little surprise on christmas day till next time i'm kylie and my dad's dead i'm elliot and my dad's deadbeat but remember not all dads have to be bad (laughs) 